Well, good evening, Summit Church. Good to see all of you here tonight. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's a joy to be with you tonight as we continue in the book of Ruth. As Kino mentioned, uh, I think this is week five that we've been studying this book, and it's been a great journey for us, really, as a church, uh, as families, as individuals. We've been asking uh, essentially the question along the way through this series. What does it look like for us to genuinely love one another? That's the, that's the question that's been in many ways driving this entire series, uh, chapter by chapter. And we've been, we've been just looking at that question and applying it to our lives, and it's been really, really wonderful. And, uh, and tonight, we actually step into chapter 2. And I'm excited about this. I think this is a really unique part in the story and a really exciting part of the story. And uh, really, as I prepare this week to teach this passage uh, thinking about love, thinking about sacrifice, thinking about commitment, thinking about all those types of things uh, kind of that are accompanying this passage. It was almost impossible for me not to think about the one type of relationship in my own life that helps capture that, and, uh, and that's obviously my marriage. And, uh, and I was thinking this week, uh, not just about my marriage, but actually my wedding day, particularly the ceremony. Uh, it happened a few years ago. It was up in Golden. We got married on top of Lookout Mountain, if you've ever been there. Absolutely beautiful. It was an outdoor ceremony. Gorgeous views. Beautiful day. Angela was, was just breathtaking. And I remember still uh, the ceremony, particularly near the end of the ceremony, the part where Angela and I were both up front uh, getting ready to exchange our vows. And to be honest... I don't remember anything that I said. I mean, not a single word. Not, not a single word of the vows that I exchanged that day uh, do I remember in that moment. Because all of it was a blur. You know, on one hand, I was just nervous. You know, if you've ever been married, you kind of know what, what happens in that moment. You're just really, really nervous. You're in front of a lot of people. Uh, and even for me, who are you know, kind of accustomed to public speaking, I think I'd realized, like, up until that moment of my life, those were the most significant words I had ever said, and I just didn't want to mess them up, you know? So there's already, like, a general uh, nervousness that accompanies that, accompanies that. but uh, it wasn't the only thing, because uh, alongside that general nervousness, uh, y- you have to kind of realize this ceremony took place at a country club on their outside deck, which was directly above their swimming pool. All right, and, and so at the exact same time that you have two young adults pledging their undying love for one another, uh, you had two young boys practicing their cannonballs literally like 15 feet away. And so that's just a little bit distracting when you're trying to get married. Uh, and, and that's all I could think of the entire time. Like, why are they doing that? Why is that so loud? Why is this happening right now? I could even, from where I was standing, I, I could even see like half the audience they weren't even watching the ceremony. They were watching the cannonballs. And so I was like, man, this is terrible. We've got to like, move this along as quickly as possible. And, uh, and so really, I don't remember anything I said. I- I'm told I-, I said what I was supposed to. I'm told I vowed my love and commitment to Angela. Uh, but I don't really remember it. It was all kind of a blur. Uh, but as I was thinking about that this week, you know, one of the things that really occurred to me was even despite the cannonballs, despite the chicken fights, despite everything that was kind of happening uh, 15 feet away, one of the things I realized is that um, I really think, like looking back, I, I was fairly disillusioned about the commitment I was making that day anyways. Even if it was been perfectly silent and I was perfectly in clear mind, I, I think I, if I'm just being honest, looking back, a few years removed from that moment, I was a little disillusioned about the commitment that I was making that day. And here's why. Uh, Tonight, we're talking about love and service. Love and service. And by service, I just mean practically serving someone, practically serving other people. And I think um, 
you know, a lot of us, we don't tend to think of service as a major component of love. At least I didn't, particularly on that day at the altar, as I was about to say I do. Uh, you know, service kind of came as more of a, um, maybe it's like a thoughtful act or some, just a nice gesture at times that we might do in our lives. But for me, and for probably most of us, don't, we don't tend to think of, of service as a major or important part of love. But here's what I've realized, particularly a few years after. Um, not only is service an important aspect of love, I've come to really realize that service is the most important part of love. Service is really one of the main components, really a driving force. It's the most practical outworking of love in our lives today. And that's what I have begun to realize as I look back on my life, look back in marriage, and seeing that this is uh, something that I think we tend to underestimate its importance in our lives, but really it is the central driving force to how we understand love. And I think the reason why this is really hard for me to grasp at the time is that for me, maybe for some of you, when we tend to think about love, um, particularly, we just think about, uh, I, probably the best way to describe it is just the stuff of love, what makes love, love, you know, what uh, the most defining moments of love, the times where love is best put on display. Really, um, when love is at its best, maybe that's the best way to say it, when love is at its best, for me, I think I was just a little disillusioned about what that looks like actually in real life. And so that's why um, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2 tonight, and this is going to hopefully be a really nice gift to us because this is going to be, Ruth is showing us tonight what love looks like at its best. And we're going to start tonight in verse 1. You know, Kino already introduced this to us and read the passage. And uh, the first thing we're going to see tonight, if you want to turn back to verse 1 with me, we're going to just be looking at uh, this story and how Ruth serves in such a generous way. Wait, now, uh, if you remember, if we said last week that this is uh, not just chapter two, but this is almost like act two of the story, right? Uh, last week, we kind of ended, we, we, we pulled the curtain uh, with two women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, as they were turning back to Bethlehem, Naomi's homeland. And these women, as they travel back and as they arrive into Bethlehem, they've lost basically everything, right? They've lost their husbands. They've lost children. Uh, they, they've suffered a tremendous amount. They've gone through a tremendous amount of loss, a tre- tremendous amount of discouragement. It's very, very sad, very, very tragic. And that's kind of the backdrop that we have, uh, the context going into chapter two. So verse one says, now uh, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. All right, we've got a few different things that are going on here right now. First, um, remember, they are husbandless, okay? That's the first thing we know about these two women. Second, they're childless. And third, the, the first, you know, that's kind of the first thing we also see in this part of the passage, uh, they're hungry, all right? These women are hungry. And if there's one thing we all probably know, when a w- woman is hungry, we don't want to get in the way of that, right? And that's exactly what we see Ruth do. She kind of recognizes the situation. She kind of assesses the situation. And is like, all right, we don't have any food right now. We just walked 60 miles into town. And if we're going to eat, it's going to be because I do something about it. And that's exactly what happens. She, uh, she gets up, she goes to the fields. And, uh, and if you notice there, even in verse 2, 
Uh, this is kind of interesting. A lot of uh, commentators will even say the nature of what she says to Naomi, it's not really even requesting permission. You know, she says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears. This is more of like, this is not asking permission. This is telling her what's about to happen. She's like, I'm going to the field. It's like when my wife asked me to take the trash out. It's not really a question because it's not really up for debate, right? It's like, I can't say, uh, no. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm telling you something. I'm telling you to take out the trash. And that's exactly what Ruth is doing at this moment as well. She's telling Naomi, I'm going to get us food because if I don't get us food, we are not going to eat. And if we're not going to eat, we are not going to survive. And so, you know, one of the first things I think we always need to do when we get to a passage like this, when we get to really, to be honest, any part in the scriptures, um, it's just a good question to ask, why is this included? Like, why is a part like this included in the story? Because it seems like going and grabbing food, and it's particularly in a story like Ruth that is so short, it's only four chapters. It's four chapters long. Each chapter is really short. And you wonder, why does the narrator choose to include such a random detail? Hey, we've got to go eat. Let's go grab some food and uh, make this work. Well, I think that's a, a particularly helpful question to ask anytime we're reading the Bible, anytime we're studying the scriptures. Why does the author choose to put that in there? And here's, my, here's my assumption here. Uh, up to this point in the story, we have seen Ruth commit her love to Naomi. We have, heard, we have seen uh, Ruth declare her love for Naomi, but it's not until this point in the story when Ruth gets up, when she walks into the fields, when she begins to get her hands dirty, that is the first moment in this story that we actually see Ruth demonstrate her love for Naomi. She's showing Naomi her love by actually serving her, by getting out there, by practically and tangibly meeting the needs of Naomi. And, and, and so this is the first thing we see. And we see this is love, I, I really believe, this is love at its best. Okay, This is love at its best when she is sacrificially serving to meet the needs of somebody else. And as I studied this this week, I really feel like this should be good news for us. Like, th- this should almost be uh, like liberating news for us when we see something like that because uh, here, here's where I'm coming from. Here, I don't know if you're anything like this, but for me, I tend to feel um, a tremendous amount of pressure in daily life uh, to almost live up to this like, hyper-centralized, hyper-marketed, hyper glamorous view of love, um, this hyper-glamorous view of life to the fullest that seems to be thrown at us at every angle all the time. In fact, I, I particularly feel this, I think maybe it has something to do with just living in Colorado, uh, where you, you sense almost all the time, I feel this pressure that I, every day of my life, every weekend of my life needs to be spectacular, you ever feel this? You know, it's like every, all the time you, you feel like I should be eating the best meals this city has to offer. I should be hiking the best trails the mountains have to offer. I should be skiing the best slopes that there are to offer. I should be going from destination to destination, exploring the, the most remote places of our state every single day, every single weekend. And if I'm not, I'm kind of a failure. And I don't know if you feel that pressure, but I feel like it's almost like every moment of my life needs to be Instagram worthy. <laughs> Do you ever feel like that? And I mean, if I'm just being honest, like, my life's not like that. Like, it's, it's really not. I, I can't live that type of lifestyle. My life is just kind of boring, I think. And I don't know if you ever resonate with this. I hope you do to some degree, or else this is going to be kind of depressing the rest of the night. But, I mean, I wake up. I eat the same thing for breakfast every single morning. 
And then I go to work, nine to five, and then I come home, and then eventually I go to sleep, and then I wake up, and I do it again five days in a row. And you know what? Like, occasionally there's something in there that I feel like, yeah, the rest of the world should know about this, and I'll post it, you know? But the rest of the time, it's like, no, it's, it's, it's kind of boring. It's not, really, uh, it's not really that spectacular. But you know what I've realized, and I think Ruth is beginning to really show us this, I mean, particularly this scene, like she gets up, she gets out of bed, she walks to the fields. I think what she's beginning to show us is that most of life, if we're being transparent, most of life is kind of a mundane routine, right? It's kind of a mundane routine. It's not bad. I mean, it's not a bad thing, right? We can, we can all be in agreement. Life can be a mundane routine, and it's not a bad thing. But I think, I mean, the longer I personally follow Jesus, the longer I study the life and the ministry of Jesus, the longer I really just press into understanding the way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus loved people, the way Jesus met the needs of people, I've really begun to just, just to realize that it's the mundane routine of life where love can be at its best. It's the mundane routine of life where love can be at its best. Really, I think it's the mundane routine of life. It, it almost functions as, as rich soil for love to grow in. Does that make sense? It, the mundane routine of life, it's like rich, so, this is a, as poetic as I'm going to get all night, okay? But it's the rich soil for love to grow in. It fosters love. And here's why. Because it gives us the greatest opportunity to serve one another. Think about it. Within that mundane routine of life, we have more opportunities to consistently serve the people around us. And that is why I think it's, it's such an important thing for us to evaluate. The mundane routine of life provides for us the most consistent opportunities to love the people around us. It's not the exotic vacations or the romantic getaways that we tend to assume like, oh, this is where my love is best put on display. It's not the, the romantic camping trips to the, to the mountains that we say, oh, like, snap, like, look how much I love my wife. Or, you know, snap, look how great of a father I am in this moment. No. You know, as great as those times are, it's not, the, it's not the greatest opportunity for us to be able to lovingly share our lives with somebody else. Because in the end, I think when we really dig into it, when we really examine our lives in the way that we love and serve one another, it's really not that glamorous. I think that's, that should be really liberating for us. That should be really freeing for us because it, it helps us kind of put it into the proper framework that our love for one another happens within a very narrow, mundane routine. It doesn't have to be extraordinarily gla- glamorous but it gives us the opportunity to love the very people that God has placed in our lives. And so uh, here's what I want to do. I, wanna, um, I just want to give you first two ways to serve someone well. And uh, in doing this, my hope, my prayer is that this is not something that you feel like, okay, this is just one more thing that he's putting on my plate to go do. Uh, this is one more thing I have to try to accomplish this week. No, that's not what I'm trying to do. In fact, I think it's the opposite. What I'm, what I'm hoping from this is that you, you feel like I said, liberate it, but you're able to recognize and maybe even celebrate some of the things that you're already doing because this is trying to be built into the normal parts of everyday life. So I want to give you two ways uh, that I've found to be really helpful for me to serve someone else within the normal, normal rhythms of life. Uh, and I found this particularly helpful with my family and my friends. Uh, so the first one, first way to serve someone well, uh, we serve someone well when first we follow through. I mean, I think this is what you first see Ruth doing. She, she committed to love Naomi, and then she actually demonstrated her love for Naomi. Her, her actions matched her words. And I think this is something for us very, very practically. I've just realized when I follow through with a commitment, like it makes a really big deal. Like it's a really big deal when I actually like promise to do something and then carry it out. I, I mean, just from the, even the most simple 
illustration. If I tell my wife, I'm going to be home at 5.15 tonight, and it's 6 o'clock, 6.15, I mean, have any of you ever done that before? It doesn't work out very well, does it? It's like, you told me you're going to be home then, and now you're home now. And, you know, one of the easiest ways just for me to practically serve and love my wife is, if I'm going to be home now, I'm going to be home now. And, um, and you guys have probably recognized this in other areas of life. It's not just when you come home, but really, if you commit to do anything, whether it is, uh, I don't know, a, a date, a meeting, a, you know, a work project, a play date, any of those types of things, if you commit to be there, like, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to show someone how much you love them. And and a great opportunity to serve them. Why? Because you're able to show them how much you care and that they're worth prioritizing. Does that make sense? When you follow through with a commitment, commitment, you're able to demonstrate to somebody that they care, that you care about them, and they're worth prioritizing. And I think this is really one of the reasons why Jesus' ministry was so effective. His presence was so powerful in the midst of people because he was able to demonstrate and show to them that he cared about them and that they were worth prioritizing in a way that nobody else was ever able to do. So uh, for us in my house, uh, I've realized that this is uh, a, just a really easy way for us to demonstrate our love for one another, particularly when we do follow through with something. Uh, Angela and I really just try to be much better now uh, at recognizing how someone has followed through. So usually it, just, it looks like saying thank you. Uh, thank you for the acts that um, you're kind of maybe expected even to do, but I want to recognize you doing them because in doing that, I'm able to just reaffirm the love we have for one another. So whether it's something like, hey, thank you for taking out the trash. Thank you for making breakfast this morning. Thank you for cleaning up around the house. Thank you for taking care of bedtime tonight. Thank you for putting Raleigh down for a nap. Thank you. Any of those types of things. Those give us, those just build into our rhythms opportunities to thank one another for following through on the commitments that we made. That's the first way to serve someone well. Secondly, um, we are able to serve someone well when we are helpful. When we are helpful. Now, again, both of these kind of come off, I feel like, as just common sense. They're not exceptionally uh, deep. They're not exceptionally spiritual. But I think if we just like are honest about daily life and daily love with one another, I mean, I think this is really, this gets at the heart of our regular rhythms as we do the daily grind. Because I mean, it doesn't take long, whether you're in a relationship, whether you're married, it does not take long at all to realize that exceptional love and sacrifice, it's much, much less the Hollywood stuff that we're constantly bombarded with. And it's much, much more just the, I I think the, I don't want to say boring, but I think it's kind of boring. I mean, I think like real, genuine love has an element that's kind of boring. It's good boring, it's not a bad boring, but it's kind of boring. It's not as glamorous and exciting and as adventurous that we always tend to, to imagine it being with every blockbuster that we watch. It's a little bit boring because the majority of things that you do throughout the day, even some of those necessary evils that you feel like are just required of you, a lot of times those are tremendous acts of love and service built into your home, built into your regular rhythms. And we, wanna, we don't want to miss out on opportunities to give thanks for those. I mean, let me give you an example. On one hand, I'm, as a dad uh, of a daughter, I'm tempted to really believe that when I go out of my way and I am really creative or I do something really special for my daughter, like I go on a daddy-daughter date, I'm tempted to believe that that's kind of like the pinnacle of my love for her, that she's going to be able to see how much I love her in those moments more than any other time, and she's going to remember that, and that's going to be like a memory worth creating or repeating. And, you know, taking my daughter out for ice cream 
that's really easy. Okay, that's, that's like really, really, anybody can do that. Anybody can, take, anybody can take my daughter out for ice cream even. You know, she, even my daughter who is like incredibly shy and cautious, you could be a complete stranger. But if you offered her ice cream, I mean, she would be walking away with you in the car, no questions asked. And, you know, and that's the, the reason why, because something like that is really, really easy. But I, what I've come to realize is that love at its best you know, true serving, true sacrificial love. It's not the daddy-daughter dates even, as great as those are. I love daddy-daughter dates because I love ice cream and I love my daughter and those things are like great together. Uh, but even that, that's, that's not the greatest act of love. Those are not the greatest times of my love and service to my daughter. No, the, the greatest opportunities for me to love and serve my daughter, the greatest opportunities for me to love and serve my wife, a lot of times, I mean, there are those kind of instances where it's like, yeah, I'll change the next dirty diaper, right? I, I'll get up at 2 a.m. when she's screaming in bed. I'll do the next feeding. I'll, you know, I'll change the clothes. I'll play the game. I'll sing the song for the 100th time again and again and again. Why? Because I love her. Why? Because I'm willing to serve her. Why? Because I'm willing to sacrifice for her. And those are the things that we, we begin to realize the real work of life, the real work of love. It's not not nearly as glamorous as we're, we're tempted to believe or we're persuaded to believe at times. But every time we're able to, 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 every time we're just be able to be helpful, I think what we're doing is we're laying a foundation of trust. We're laying a foundation, foundation of love. We're laying a foundation of commitment with every act of helpfulness. I heard someone say this week, actually, that being helpful is the fabric of love. Isn't that great? Being being helpful is the fabric of love. It's what knits us together. It's what binds us together. It gives us the opportunity to lay that foundation of trust and commitment, and love and faithfulness. And, um, and I just, again, I, I think this is one of those passages. This is one of those ideas that hopefully encourages you. Hopefully it liberates us from feeling the pressure to kind of perform in all different types of ways. Particularly, so many of you do that in wonderful ways already. I really believe that. I mean, so many of you are dads here and you work really, really hard for your family. You go every day, you're like, Ruth, going to the fields, getting the food, coming home. You're not doing anything miraculous. You are not changing the world. You are just going to work. But you are coming home and then providing, a, you know, you're, you're making a living for your family so that they can, they can flourish. And that's a really great thing. I mean, there's dignity in that. There's value in that. There's purpose in that. And that's something we want to celebrate. Some of you are moms and you are raising kids right now. And you have an incredibly difficult job. I mean, you are, you are just, inve- some of you moms particularly, you are like the primary person shaping the way that your child sees and understands this world. I think it's easy to miss that sometimes between all of the meltdowns and the accidents and the never-ending messes. It's easy to kind of skip out on the level of investment that you're making in someone's life. But you are shaping an in- individual. That's a tremendous act of love and service. And we should celebrate those. Like we should really genuinely celebrate those things because they are great opportunities for you to love someone else. And so uh, being helpful is the fabric of love. And I think we're doing, I think as a church, we're doing that really, really well. I think a lot of you as families, as individuals, I hear the stories and it's really, really encouraging just to, to be able to see how you are just being helpful, how you are just committing to other people and following through with those commitments in a way that's able to demonstrate your love and service to one another. So that's the first point uh, I think we see tonight as we look at uh, this story. We're seeing how uh, it's really, it's kind of the mundane routine of life where love is at its best. It's the mundane routine of life. But um, 
we're going to see something else in this story that I think is particularly helpful for us. And this is kind of a question that was certainly looming in the minds of the, the original audience when this author was writing this story. And I think it's one of those questions that I think in many ways that we can't avoid tonight ourselves. And that's, where's God? Where's God in this story? You know, Ruth is putting herself out there. She's working hard. She's sacrificing. She's serving. She's getting in the dirt. And where's, where's God throughout all this? And that may have even be a question that at some point you've asked in your own life. I mean, have you ever been at a point in life where you're just, maybe things aren't working out exactly the way that you wish, things aren't working out exactly the way that you planned, and you find yourself at the end of the day just wondering, like, well, where exactly is God right now? Well, I think that's a very profound question, and I think that's a very important question, and I think that's also, I think that's the very question that the narrator of this story is, is trying to create, it's trying trying to almost build that into our minds as we read this story. And uh, one of the, the great thing about this part of Ruth is we see a turning point. We begin to see a turning point, and, and the, the narrator begins to answer this question for us. He begins to, to almost show us what God is doing here. And, uh, and, and this is kind of funny because one of the things that we see, um, particularly we kind of lose a little bit of the drama when it's uh, in English, but this story is filled with a tremendous amount of irony. In fact, a lot of Old Testament scholars say there's so much irony and humor in the original Hebrew of this story that the original Jewish audiences would have been like almost laughing out loud when they hear these verses. And so we get a little bit of that when we, uh, when we read it. And let's just pick it again up in verse 1, and we're going to see a little bit about how uh, God is not absent. Okay, that's kind of the big idea. God is not absent here. He is actually, uh, he is very, very present. And as Ruth continues to serve, as Ruth continues to love, God is actively blessing her work. And and we begin to see that. Verse one says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Okay, so you have this guy, his name is Boaz, and it tells us that he is a relative of Elimelech. Now, if you remember, I know we've had a lot of names in the story. Elimelech was Naomi's husband. So Boaz is some type of relative of, um, of the family here. We don't really know exactly what he is. He might be a cousin. He might be a second uncle. We don't really know. All we know is he is related. And this is really, this is like a signal. This is a huge clue to the to the jewish audience that a romance is about to be set up all right now i realize like in our culture today if i were to say to you so and so is your cousin that doesn't immediately signal to you like oh a romance is about to be set up does it no it doesn't unless you're from like west virginia or kentucky or okay i'll stop (laughs) other places (laughs) um but that's what's happening i mean you can imagine just imagine this like a movie scene all right this is a movie scene you've got a primary character a young girl she's single she's at a party she's hoping to find a date she's not having any luck until the camera starts kind of zooming over and panning over to another guy and all of a sudden there's a man there walks into the room that's what's happening right here like the audience sees this and it's like oh like something's about to happen. Boaz entered the story, and it only continues here. Verse 3 says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Okay, now, again, in the, the English is not nearly as dramatic as what you would see in the Hebrew here. Uh, that phrase, she happened to come into the field, 
Um, that would almost literally be translated uh, by luck. She luckily just so happened to enter into the field. But that doesn't really make any sense, so we don't speak like that. So it just says, she just happened to come into the field um, after the reapers, the part belonging to Boaz. Then you get to verse 4, and it says, And behold, surprise, Boaz enters the scene. He came from Bethlehem. Now, I mean, just, um, just to kind of look at the plot structure here. I think I put it up there on the screen. We got a couple of verses there. You kind of just imagine, um, all within a few verses, right? The narrator has raised the tension. He's got us wondering, where is God? What's God doing? Why does God seem so silent? And then all of a sudden, what you have happen is he says, okay, look what happens here. There just happened to be a man named Boaz, who's a relative. And Ruth just happened to stumble into the field that belonged to Boaz. And Boaz just happened to arrive that very day that Ruth was working in his field. Guys, this is kind of like a chick flick. You know, you're watching with your girlfriend, and as you're watching, the, the plot continues to make these turns and twists, and you're like, come on. Like, that never happens in real life. Who comes up with this kind of stuff? And you look over to your girlfriend, and like, she's hugging the pillow, and like a tear in the eye, and smile, and you're like, all right, maybe I'll wait. I'll talk about it tomorrow. It's not that big of a deal right now. The like, Book of Ruth is turning into a major chick flick. That's what's happening. That's the point of tonight, okay? Um, no, I'm just kidding. But, but here's, what, here's what's so important to the plot. Here's, here's really so important to in, in understanding the entirety of this story. Um, deeply ingrained within the Jewish culture, deeply ingrained into their culture was this belief that nothing happens by chance. Okay, you've got all this ironic events happening, all these series of different things happening all at one time, but deeply ingrained into their belief is that nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by coincidence. God ordered this universe down to every detail, every decision, every coincidence, every different circumstance, every different season of life happened under the good, sovereign hand of God's providence. And so when the author is saying, it just so happened, what he's really saying is God is not absent. God is very, very, very present right now. And he is graciously at work behind the scenes, blessing the work of Ruth, blessing the service of Ruth, blessing the love of Ruth. You see, here's the thing. Ruth was completely committed to sacrificially loving the one person that God had placed directly in front of her. Man, that is, for, I was even thinking about this on my bike ride over today. This is just, uh, I think it's particularly challenging, particularly for our generation. We've talked about this before, but a generation that has such a tremendous fear of missing out on all the possible opportunities out there, all the possible potential out there, the, you know, the opportunity to get the perfect job in a different city, the opportunity to maybe find someone else to love, the opportunity to find a new group, the opportunity to go somewhere else, to travel, all these different opportunities that we have a fear of missing out. And I think the problem is that we tend to miss out on the very opportunity that God has placed directly in front of us to love the people around us. And the reason why this is particularly challenging is, I mean, it seems like for Ruth, it just wasn't even an option. I mean, it just wasn't even an option to look outside of the one person that God had directly placed in front of her an old, disgruntled woman, I mean, she looked to her and said, okay, this is the person, God, that you've put in my life. This is the person that you've commanded me to love. And I'm going to do that, very simply. I'm going to commit to love you. I'm going to commit to 
serve you. I mean, it's not even a, I mean, this is not even like a means to an end. Like, okay, I'll do this as long as you, God, do that, and then she does this, and then this works out in this way, all in the end just to benefit me. No, it's not even that. It's just a simple commitment to love, a simple commitment to serve the very person that God placed directly in front of her. Free from manipulation, free from you owe me now, free from what do I get out of this? And I think that's, gosh, when I think about this story, when I think particularly about this, this is just a really unique place in the story. And, I, and to be honest, I think this like resonates with me. And I think it resonates probably with all of you so much because, I mean, just, to think, just think about what's happening right now. We know as the readers, like we know as the audience here, like what's happening God is graciously at work here, behind the scenes, blessing the decisions that Ruth makes to love and to serve Naomi. We know that he is ordering the events for her good. We know that he is ordering events in such incredible ways. I mean, we're going to see this in the coming weeks, how this story continues to unfold. But we know that. Ruth doesn't know that. Ruth doesn't see this coming. Ruth, right now, all she knows is that I get up, I put my feet on the floor, I go to the fields, I collect food, I come home. I see the one person in front of me. I'm going to love her, and that's all I'm going to do. With no promise of a future, no promise of provision, no promise of anything outside of that. Ruth doesn't have the opportunity to see God orchestrating a beautiful story around her. Around her. All she sees is the opportunity to love somebody. And that is uniquely challenging, I think, to me. I, I mean, that's just really convicting. I, I, that pushes me to to look at the people right in front of me, not to the people outside of me, the people right in front of me. How do I love these people really, really well? How do I love the people that God has put into my life? And and I think the most beautiful thing about this story, as as we're going to see in the coming weeks, this man, Boaz, I mean, most of you know the story. Boaz is not only going to be a man who loves and protects Ruth, Boaz is going to turn out not to only be a man who will comfort her and provide for her and protect her, but together, Ruth and Boaz, they will be a part of leaving a legacy, leaving a legacy that paves the way for Jesus Christ. And when they do that, the most profound thing about it is that it all begins with simple acts of love and service. Do you see that? This relationship starts with nothing but simple acts of of love and service. And we need to understand, I think, for us today, the reason why I think this is such a great part in the story to apply to our lives right now is that the the very same way that God works in the details of Ruth's life is the, the very same way that he works in our lives today as well. And I think when we look at that, it's very easy for us to want to to hear and to see and to feel God actively at work in this very present moment right now before my eyes in the windshield of my life as I'm driving forward. We want to see and feel and hear him actively speaking right now, but I think the reality is that it just doesn't happen nearly that much. And I think when we're being honest, like if we are followers of Jesus, we are the people of God We walk by faith and not by sight. We choose to believe that he's graciously working behind the scenes for his glory and for our good. And it's in the rear view mirror. Weeks down the road, months down the road, years down the road that we're able to look into the rear view mirror. We're able to look behind us and see as events unfold. We're able to see as years have gone by the gracious and the loving, the merciful acts of God 
in our lives in some of the most important and meaningful ways. And that's really good news. I mean, that is such good news for us. And the reason why I think this is so helpful, I mean, the reason why I find such a tremendous amount of comfort in this story, because it makes me feel like I don't need to be in control. It makes me feel like I don't need to be in control. Do you ever feel like for, for life to work out exactly how you want, for you to find the, the best husband, for you to find the best job, for you to find the family situation that will just turn itself around, for any of those things to happen, you just feel like the weight is on your shoulders. You've got to do the right things. You've got to control everything ultimately. You ever feel like that? I feel like that often. And then I read a story like this, and it helps me believe I really don't need to be in control. I mean, it is just such a demoralizing place to live. It's exhausting. I mean, it's, it's utterly exhausting to try to feel like I have to control and strategically organize every event of my life. And we have a God who speaks and says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. In fact, what I think this shows us is that when you take, when you take our faithfulness to love and to serve the people that God has placed in our life, when you take that faithfulness and you combine it with a God who's graciously working behind the scenes, acting on our behalf for his glory and for our good, and you put those things together, anything is possible. Anything is possible. When we, we trust and we believe that God is blessing this sacrificial love, and he is working for our good, and we can trust him. That nothing surprises him, that everything is happening under the good, sovereign hand of God's providence. And when we believe that, when we give our lives to that, when, we've, when we love like that, when we follow Christ like that, I think God begins to show us how to love one another really, really well. Let's pray, and then we're going to give you the opportunity actually to respond through partaking in communion, and then we're going to continue worshiping. Jesus, we thank you for tonight. And uh, when we... Th- when we think about love and service, we can't help but think about you. Because uh, even as we prepare our hearts for communion, and as we think about what you've done on our behalf, the way that you've loved us, and the way that you've sacrificed for us, Father, Jesus, we just believe that you give us the perfect model of love and sacrifice. And Gosh, even on the the moments leading up to your death, on the very night before your death, as you gather together with your closest friends and disciples, even in that moment, a a time of all times where you could have made that about yourself, you were more interested in serving others. You grabbed a towel, you grabbed a bowl of water, you washed the feet of those men before washing away their sin. So tonight, Father, as we... uh, as we gather here and as we proclaim what you've done on our behalf, we proclaim the goodness of salvation in your name. As we proclaim what, the way that you've loved and served us to the very end, even on the cross, as you were dying, you died for those you were serving. We thank you for that opportunity to love and to celebrate and to worship you. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.